Pay no attention to the people behind the curtain. Remember I told you I was in a play of that as a kid? No. This is hot, fresh Rin lore. Who did you play? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Henry. Because he had one oh, who line. The fuck is, who the fuck is Uncle Henry? Uh, I literally don't remember. The main character's uncle in the very beginning. But what Auntie does he M, do? Auntie M's husband. Uh, okay. Um, not much. <laughs> yeah. I I was like five, so. Oh, you were a baby. That's cute. It was it was very funny because the person who was supposed to be playing my niece was literally twice my height. Oh. That's <laughs> and actually really literally. adorable. <laughs> yeah, because you were little. I feel like I'd have I'd have made a good munchkin, except the munchkins had lines and, you know, they weren't going to give me lines. Oh. oh, no, that's so cute. I hope your mom has pictures of that. I'm sure you could ask her. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was my that was my first foray into theater. Um, and here I am years later, not really having been a theater kid, but having been a theater kid and all but the actual getting on stage bit. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you had, you had some performance, you have various other performance experience. So I think the theater kid energy is strong with you. The theater kid energy is incredibly strong and not least because I'm gay. Hi, Sam. Hi, Rin. How's it going? Uh, I am very tired, but I'm very ready to discuss uh, what we have to discuss on this very special bonus episode. Hell yeah. It's not really a bonus episode, I guess, if we're releasing it like within the normal schedule. It's just to break up the fact that we talked about a whole book and then we're going to talk about two more whole books, but occasionally we need to split them up. Yeah. So in all of our previous episodes leading up to this one, we have made a lot of references to various things, including Tolkien's life and background specifically. And there's not a lot of times within the specific plot of a chapter that it makes sense to just pause all of the events of the plot and really dig into that. So this will just be a good supplementary resource to refer to and enrich our future discussions to just fill out the details of who this guy was, what information we are working with in terms of our own frame of reference for what his life was like and what his deal was. So hopefully it will be interesting. Hopefully it will be illuminating and sort of shed some light on why he might've made some of the creative choices that he made. Yeah. So hello everyone. And welcome back to this special episode of the Phantom Apprentice, where we are discussing everything that Sam just said. Mm -hmm. Um, we're going to go through, you know, a high-level overview of just Tolkien's life and some of his influences in his writing. There is a whole field of academic study known as Tolkien studies. You can get a PhD in it. Oh, I didn't so, know. So, yeah, there are, there are places you can go and spend years of your life. Your entire career can be studying Tolkien and the work that he did and the influences that have gone into that and come out of that. So we're not going to 
do that. We're not going to do that all justice in however long this podcast episode ends up being. So this yeah, is very this much, is a- this is not even 101. This is, this is the introductory lecture to 101. Yeah, this is just brief summary for the apprentices, for the people like me who are coming into this totally without context. We are providing just enough context to get by so that we're not making inside jokes and references to things that we haven't fully explained to you because we are nice conversation partners, even if our conversation is one-sided with us being one side and you listeners being the other side. You know, we're trying to make sure everybody is in the loop here goal is everyone's having a good time that that i think should be the goal of so many things in life Mm -hmm. so i guess let's let's just roll into it unless we have anything else we want to talk about no i think we should uh just get into it sort of big disclaimer that goes over all of this is we obviously have a really strong connection to these books. They mean a lot to us. Um, we admire Tolkien's work a great deal. And I think our opinion of him is generally very favorable, but it's, and I think that we've done a good job representing this stance in other episodes, but it bears repeating. The goal of this little discussion is not to elevate an old white Catholic British guy as the best, biggest genius dude ever. Um, You know, there's a lot of critiques of Tolkien and his work that are important and valid, and we invite people to participate in that with us. But just as a disclaimer, you know, we have critical thinking skills. And if you come away from this thinking that we are, you know, elevating him as the least problematic guy of all time because we're saying nice things about him. That's, we've fundamentally miscommunicated something. (laughs) So that is, that is our statement of intent. Thank you, Professor Sam. (laughs) You're welcome. But that being said, I took up the half of this that was just sort of biographical details, his life, so we can get into that. Um, so Tolkien was born in 1892, died in 1973. He was 81 when he died. It's a good long life. Um, this source for basically all of this, by the way, is just his Wikipedia page. So if you want to read more detailed information to start your future Tolkien studies PhD, then go for it. But he was born in what is now South Africa and came to England with his family as a child on what was supposed to be a long vacation, but they just ended up staying forever. I think his family was originally English in origin. And he considered himself to be English. He identified as being English. He didn't feel much connection with the country of his birth. Um, His childhood was charming and unremarkable. He was apparently bitten by a spider. And there's a whole thing in the Wikipedia page about how he was bitten by this spider and people think that that is the reason that spiders are enemies in his work, but he apparently had no memory of this happening. And so I'm not really sure why that became such a foundational piece of Tolkien lore. Okay. But 
here's the thing. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really gotten to this yet. So this is like a minor spoiler of in The Hobbit, giant spiders are an enemy that Bilbo faces along the way. They, you know, attack and uh, nearly kill all of the dwarves. There will be more giant spiders in Lord of the Rings, and they are eviler giant spiders. Um, Mm -hmm. And the giant spiders, spider or spiders mentioned in Lord of the Rings, are the descendants of Ungoliant, who is basically a spider-shaped deity of pure evil. Who, oh, uh, oh my. Even, you know, scared the shit out of basically literal Satan. Okay. So, uh, I am a confirmed um, arachnophobe and uh, am not a fan of any, pretty much anything in um, Clade Calicerata at all. Except for horseshoe crabs, they're they're fun. Siphosaura, mm-hmm. I think they're fun. I enjoy them. But besides horseshoe crabs, anything else in Clicerata is off the table. Point being, I have only vague memories of things that sparked my childhood fear of spiders, and have you know continued into adulthood. So you know. Things like this, where you are bitten by a large tarantula, mm-hmm. um, like Tolkien was, and I'm holding up my hands to show Sam how large baboon spiders are big. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, if you feel like seeing images, look that up yourself. And if you don't, just know it's bad. Whether or not he remembered the event, it probably did make some sort of lasting effect on his subconscious. And, you know, him saying, I didn't think badly of spiders. It wasn't really a problem for me. I don't trust him. (laughs) Oh, no. Considering unresolved. (sighs) I mean, considering spiders were like the antagonist through the rest of his work. Yeah, I want to say... You know, oh, I feel so bad for him, all his unresolved spider trauma. But he had a lot more, much more severe trauma from, you know, World War One, which we'll get to. So maybe <laughs> most of his energy went to unpacking that and not his childhood arachnid encounter. So we can stop talking about eight-legged creatures. I just thought it was funny that it was such a big deal in the article <laughs> about him because it doesn't seem to have been a subject of much of his conscious thought. But in terms of the trajectory of his life after that, I really want to talk about his wife and his relationship with his wife, yes. which makes me I love Edith. so happy. And we have briefly made allusions to this before, but just to really get into it. So her name was Edith Mary Bratt, and she was an older woman and a Protestant, very scandalous because Tolkien was Catholic. And their love was literally forbidden So I was not (laughs) entirely clear on who the source of this forbidding was, but it seemed like it was his boss slash kind of academic mentor who really had a big hand in forming his career and who basically said to Tolkien that he had to stop talking to her and stop writing to her or this other guy would tank his career. So they didn't correspond for a long time, except for one letter that I think is preserved somewhere. 
And in the meantime, during this kind of radio silence, she had accepted another man's proposal. But then Tolkien got to the point that he wanted to be at in his career and reached back out to her and did this whole, you know, I've never stopped loving you. Please marry me. I love you so much, Edith. And she dropped the other guy like a hot potato and married Tolkien and loved him till the day she died, which was so sweet and wonderful. And their relationship was the basis for the story of Baron and Luthien. And I think we've also mentioned this on the show that they have those names engraved on their headstones, which Mm -hmm. is just absolutely heartbreaking, makes you cry because love is beautiful. Shortly after she died, he wrote in a letter, um, I never called Edith Luthien, but she was the source of the story that became that in time became the chief part of the Silmarillion. Um, And he talks about a trip that they took to Ruse in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and says, in those days, her hair was raven, her skin clear, her eyes brighter than you have seen them, and she could sing and dance. But the story has gone crooked, and I am left, and I cannot plead before the inexorable Mandos. The Mandos oh. being one of the Valar. Mm-hmm. And I just love people who really admire their partner, especially straight people. And it might just be because I've been around a lot of women who have yoked themselves to absolutely useless men and just complain about them constantly. But when I hear people complain about their partners in a really like persistent way, I'm just always thinking, you know, but don't you like them? Don't you admire them? Aren't you dating or married to this person because they have qualities that you really look up to and enjoy. So hearing somebody just speak so highly of his wife with these Mm -hmm. grand, poetic, beautiful terms, it just melts my heart. And they seemed to have a really fun and playful relationship. There was an anecdote on the Wikipedia page about how they went to tea shops together in Birmingham because, of course, they're British and they drink a lot of tea. And it said that they went to especially one which had a balcony overlooking the pavement. There they would sit and throw sugar lumps into the hats of passersby, moving to the next table when the sugar bowl was empty. And that's just chaotic and silly and delightful. Little hellions. I love them. Yeah. Um, And, oh, no, you go. One important note of the, the person who forbade him from talking to Edith was yeah, yeah, yeah. his guardian because um, his mother died when he was very young and he and his brother were entrusted to the care of a Catholic priest, Father Francis, who okay, was that not a fan uh, mm-hmm. that Edith was distracting him from his university studies. And apparently, according to the Wikipedia article, he, you know, obeyed Father Francis's prohibition except for once. And when Father Francis found out, he threatened to pull him out of university Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which just having your love forbidden by a priest that's extra forbidden that makes it extra fun a priest who is like your literal surrogate father yeah love it that's fantastic related to that 
the whole priest thing, he was a very devout Catholic, which was apparently also a factor in his BFF, C.S. Lewis, converting to Christianity eventually because he was so swayed by Tolkien's influence. Although C.S. Lewis went to the Church of England and not to the Catholic Church, which was a big disappointment for Tolkien. But we do see a lot of that sort of Catholic morality coming through in his writing as well. Right. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But do we want to move on to, I guess, the first of his big influences? Which is Being the war? <laughs> the war. The, the great war. The war to end all wars. <laughs> right? Because yeah. it ended all wars. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally did. <laughs> yeah, so the war. Um, Tolkien didn't volunteer for the army like a lot of men his age, which makes sense. I wouldn't volunteer for the army. And he described himself as having too much imagination and too little physical courage to do that. And it was sort of a macho thing to volunteer, and there was a lot of pressure from his family. So there were some sort of social consequences for that. But given that his priority was not dying on a battlefield, that seems reasonable. I would I would lose some cool guy points to avoid going to World War One for a little bit. Yeah, he he ended up eventually commissioning as a second lieutenant um, after mm -hmm. he finished his degree. He said basically that his relatives started dropping hints that he needed to get his ass out to the front lines, like once he was finishing his finals. Yeah. Um, it's like going to grad school to avoid getting a real job, but you're going to school to avoid dying in the trenches. I mean, people did that in the Vietnam War, too. Yeah. I mean, fucking um, makes sense. War is terrible. And yeah. he did not have any good things to say about it. Even about his training camp in one of his letters, he said, gentlemen are rare among the superiors and even human beings rare indeed. So everyone is just terrible and miserable and he had to leave for um the front line in france only a couple of weeks after getting married to edith and mm -hmm. another line from one of his letters was junior officers were being killed off a dozen a minute parting from my wife then it was like a death so before things had even really gotten started with all the big trauma it was terrible from the beginning yeah. Um, and yeah, he was married in March 1916 and shipped out to France in June of 1916. So he did not spend a lot of time uh, out in the front lines. But what he did spend was very bad. Yeah. And I had a longer quote from the article that was something that... Um, one of his children had said, in later years, he would occasionally talk of being at the front, of the horrors of the first German gas attack, of the utter exhaustion and ominous quiet after a bombardment, of the whining scream of the shells and the endless marching, always on foot through a devastated landscape, sometimes carrying the men's equipment as well as his own to encourage them to keep going. Some remarkable relics survive from that time, a trench map he drew himself, pencil written orders to carry bombs to the fighting line, then it trails off from there but even just in that quote you can see so many of the direct translations to things that he's written even in the part of lord of the rings that we've read 
Right. Even though he despised allegory in all its forms and you <laughs> refuse to admit that it, whatever, but those influences are undeniable. Yeah. I actually have some mild commentary on the allegory piece. Um, yeah. But I think yeah. it's important for us to know too, the battle that he's referring to is the battle of the Somme, mm-hmm. which for those of you who are not familiar with the history the Battle of the Somme was one of the deadliest battles in human history. Over the course uh, from July of 1916 to November of 1916, a million people, upwards of a million people died of three million combatants in the Battle of the Somme. Mm-hmm. It is it is the one of the deadliest conflicts in all of human history. Um, he had a group of uh, three other friends when he was in school. They refer to themselves as the Tea Club in Barovian society. And two of them died at the Battle of the Somme. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ended up contracting trench fever in October of 1916 and was sent back home to recuperate. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, the Battle of the Somme has been written about, you know, in numerous pieces of media as one of the most horrifying scenes uh you know ever to be seen in any war yeah so you know when when we are talking about tolkien's time in the trenches we are not just talking about like a battle we are talking about the battle (laughs) yeah and you know for those of us who have maybe had a hot minute since we were learning about World War One. It's easy to forget because I think culturally we focus more on World War Two because it was more recent. But World War One just completely changed what warfare looked like. That's the reason that it was called the war to end all wars. So not only was it so devastating, it was also completely unprecedented just seeing mm-hmm. the horrors that human beings were capable of on that grand of a scale. So there's the literal physical threat, there's that danger and that violence, but also just the existential threat of what does it mean to be a human being now and to see what we can do with all of these incredibly powerful weapons and all of the lives that we can end so quickly. So there was a lot of new layers to that experience. Yeah. I also had a comment on the, on the piece of him detesting allegory in all its forms, right? The line where he discusses this is in the beginning of, or it's in the uh, forward to the second edition of Fellowship of the Ring, mm-hmm. right? But I cordially, but I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purpose domination of the author. So I'm not sure that we're seeing allegory by his own words in his work. We are seeing applicability. We're seeing, as as he says literally in the next line, an author cannot, of course, remain wholly unaffected by his experience. Right? So he's not writing what he's seeing as purposefully meaning uh, to be an allegory for the psalm, right? He's not meaning the dead marshes 
to be no man's land. Um, this is not the great green eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg staring down as God watching over us. It's not the green light at the end of the dock. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. We can't ignore what he's saying because, or we can't ignore, you know, what he has seen and we can't deny that there are connections here because he's acknowledging that there are connections here. Um, yeah. One has indeed personally to come under the shadow of war to fully feel, to feel fully its oppression. But as the years go by, it seems now often forgotten that to be caught in youth by 1914 was no less hideous an experience than to be involved in 1939 and the following years. By 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. So <laughs> that's, you know, heavy stuff that he's dealing with in his you know, relatively young life coming out of college and going straight into the war to end all wars, expecting to die, expecting to be away from his new wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting sick and coming home. Yeah. When I was fresh out of college, I was barely able to handle my first office job. But I like yeah. that distinction between allegory and applicability and i think that having a story that is applicable and true to a broader range of human experiences also just allows it to age better and allows it to grow more and is part of what helps us to have this reading that we're doing that is so different in many ways from his original Mm -hmm. intent you know he didn't purposefully write all the gay stuff but one of the things that I was telling some of our friends about (laughs) well and one of the things that I was saying to our friends is that this queer reading of Lord of the Rings this isn't a bit I mean there's a lot of jokes that are easy and fun to make and so we do but for me being able to have this experience as an adult for the first time you know as a queer adult queerness is essential to my reading of Lord of the Rings. I can't experience this story without that layer. And because it's not specifically intentionally grounded in one event or one series of events, it sort of has the ability to adapt to that reading. And I think that's really cool. And I'll have a little more commentary on that uh, in a little bit with his influences. Yes. And I just have a couple of more little things Mm -hmm. before we get into that formally. So after the war, he goes back to civilian life in 1920. And a fun fact, as somebody who attended a historically women's college, I was very excited to see that he taught at two women's colleges that were under the Oxford umbrella. They were, let's see, Lady Margaret Hall and St. Hugh's College in their early days when they were establishing their faculty. And the reason that he was sought out for that was because he was married. So it was considered more suitable to have a married male professor than a bachelor among all of these unmarried college women. And there's layers to that. (laughs) You know, probably I would imagine if I had to put myself in the shoes of a 1920s college administrator, it would be so as not to tempt the lustful and weak-willed young women. But As a modern person, I also kind of hope that maybe 
there was some effort to protect these women and girls and that maybe a man who's already married would be less likely to be a predator. <laughs> He's already got a wife. I don't know. I I can't read too much into that, but I thought that it was cool. I thought that it was interesting. Um, he seems to have drunk his respect them in juice, so we can help. Yeah, especially with Edith. <laughs> um, um, although we don't have enough women really to to make a reading of his uh, attitudes towards women characters, but yeah, I'm I'm gonna keep looking for them. Eventually, I'll find one. Maybe. Oh yeah. Yeah, but then in his academic career, he gets into a lot of publications of medieval stories. He translates some works that I was not already familiar with, so I don't really know what they are, what they're about. Um, He also, as we've discussed, was the foremost Beowulf scholar of his day, and he started a translation that wasn't finished and published until 2014 which I thought was really cool because I just found that out. So I need to look that up and learn about Beowulf. But, and I'll let you do the majority of speaking on this. I didn't really understand what it meant to be the foremost Beowulf scholar. I kind of thought of that as just sort of a dusty, kind of boring old professor thing. No, he made people understand that it was a story about the human condition and delivered amazing lectures on it. And my mind was kind of blown learning about how important his contribution was to Beowulf scholarship. So I can hand it over to you to get into more literary influences. Um, yeah, so just to kind of roll into like his academic career and literary influences, um, the things that we're going to see more in his writing, uh, for the rest of his academic career, once he returned to civilian life, he was a reader at the university of Leeds from 1920 to 1925 and then became the Rawlinson and Bosworth professor of Anglo-Saxon at Pembroke college at Oxford from 1925 until 1959 when he retired. Mm-hmm. And he and Edith retired to a seaside resort town called Bournemouth, um, which he apparently wasn't a huge fan of, but he did very purposefully for her. Um, and apparently, you know, their love was evident in everything that they did. And uh, it wasn't until 1971 when she passed away that he returned to Oxford, where he ultimately died 21 months later. I love old people in love. um and like you said he he taught students at uh lady lady margaret hall and saint hugh's college as well primarily as a private instructor he didn't publish a lot of fantasy books during his life he published a lot of academic work a lot of poetry but he published the hobbit in 1937 lord of the rings between 54 and 55 and then two books of poetry um the Adventures of Tom Bombadil in 1962, and The Roads Go Ever On in 1967. But much of his writing was done prior to this, like during his life, and ultimately it was compiled by his son Christopher and published after his death. He wrote uh, The Silmarillion in the 30s and wanted to publish it directly after The Hobbit, but his publisher said it wouldn't be as marketable, the tone wasn't... uh, quite as readable and it has a very like biblical type tone mm-hmm. right and so alan and unwin asked him for more stories on hobbits which ultimately led us to lord of the rings so that's on his uh 
academic career. The first piece of Middle Earth writing that he did uh, was actually while he was recuperating from trench fever in sort of the 19, uh, like 1916, 1917, right? Mm -hmm. He started writing, and I have it written down somewhere, the Book of Lost Tales, or things that ultimately became the Book of Lost Tales, which weren't published until after his death. But that was his first attempt at creating what he referred to as a mythology for England. He was obsessed with mythology and particularly the language of mythology. Um, He was Mm -hmm. a philologist. He studied languages and he studied languages through uh, documents mostly. There isn't a lot of pre-Christian mythological text that survives in the UK. Um, not like in the classic, the classical world in Greece and Rome. And Mm -hmm. so his early writings were sort of an attempt to create something like that. It wasn't, you know, necessarily meant to be, you know, accurate to what people would have the stories that pre-Christian people in the UK and what is now the UK would have told, but it was meant to sort of fulfill that niche. And so when we talk about applicability, like it makes total sense that his stories are applicable even to us, that we can read them because that's what mythology is designed to do. It's designed to be readable centuries later. Yeah. Um, he worked also as a code breaker during the Second World War because, again, he was obsessed with languages. He actually developed a code while he was abroad in the First World War to send to Edith so she could keep track of his whereabouts uh, and it would evade the censors, the British Army oh, censors who Oh, my God, didn't I want, love um, that. Yeah, also, information getting out. <laughs> I'm not surprised that he married a smart woman. I don't – I didn't look that much into Edith and her life, but – she must have been a smarty pants if she could decode his code that he was sending her. That rules. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of couples yeah. develop their own sort of secret language, but that is another, that is a step above. And I love it. Yeah. So to talk about his influences, right? Mm-hmm. We've already discussed his military experience. Um, and just sort of a broad overview, right? I'll talk about classics. Beowulf and other English literature, mythology in general, uh, his interest in languages, and Catholicism. Tight. Let's do right? it. So he actually started out his academic career as a classicist. He was studying classics in, in university and ultimately switched his major to English literature. But there's a lot of classical influence that we can see in uh, his legendarium, which legendarium being a term that he coined for his collected body of works, right? Mm -hmm. We can see it with Numenor, right? The fall of Numenor, Numenor sinking beneath the sea. That screams Atlantis. It does, yeah. You have the fall of Gondolin relating to the fall of Troy. And the fall of Gondolin was actually one of the first tales in that book of lost tales that he wrote, right? Gondor can be read kind of like the Roman Empire, right? In its waning days. And then you get the Ring of Gyges. Gyges something or rather. G-Y-G-E-S. 
which is mentioned in Plato's Republic. And it is a magical ring that turns you invisible at will. Oh my God. (laughs) So like, this is not (laughs) something that, uh, he pulled out of no, you know, nowhere out of thin air. Right. We've already mentioned the sun. No, absolutely. There's like, what's the thing? There's like seven stories in all of human history or something like that, just in different Mm -hmm. forms. I don't fully know. Anyway, we've already talked about catabases. We've talked about long hero's journey or the long hero's journey, Odysseus and uh, Aeneas. So his classical education absolutely had an influence on his writing, right? But then moving on to other type, other pieces of literature, right? Specifically on to Beowulf. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, he was, you know, he was the foremost Beowulf scholar. He focused on Beowulf being read firstly as a piece of epic poetry and not as a historical document. For people who may not know, do you want to just say really quick what Beowulf is? Because we've referenced it a lot. But what yes. is, very briefly, what is Beowulf? What is its deal? Why is it significant? Beowulf is a story of a king of the Geats, or southern Swedes, named Beowulf, who has a number of adventures. He goes south into Denmark and Part, I guess the most famous part of his story is him defeating the monster Grendel, um, mm-hmm. who has been plaguing King Hrothgar in the Hall of Heorot at Lairgard for years, and then ultimately defeats Grendel's mother. He later defeats a dragon. Um, and it's it's just, the, it's the saga of his life, more or less, and his great deeds. But, and is it the oldest... Um, piece of writing that we have in the English language question mark old English oldest piece of English literature I feel like that's the factoid that people say about it you know I don't know um off the top of my head it's set in about the sixth century the certain dating of the manuscript is between 975 and 1025 potentially could have been translated, uh, could have been transmitted orally prior to that. There's a lot of similarities between the story of Beowulf, particularly the story of Beowulf at Hrothgar's court at Heorot, um, that match almost beat for beat with the story in Hrothkraki's saga, which is a Danish saga of King Hrothkraki, who has a monster that's been plaguing his hall at Lyra and who is defeated by a warrior from southern Sweden called Bodvar Bjarki, who, uh, and this is where it gets really funky, Bodvar Bjarki means warlike little bear, and Beowulf means bee wolf, which is a kenning, which is a poetic uh, roundabout reference for bear. Hmm. Um, So they probably tell roughly the same story. Yeah. And it's right. it's a really fucking old story and very foundational for all of English literature to come, which I think is yes. the, the key takeaway. Right. And I have three different translations uh, sitting next to me right now. Um, 
the Francisco Mare translation, so the Seamus Heaney translation, and the Maria Davna Headley translation. I don't have Amazing. his translation, which I need to obtain at some point. I've already but, gotten you your Christmas gift this year, but next year. I talked to my parents about it already. Don't worry. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, so he taught Beowulf in his classes to, among other students, the poet W.H. Auden, who wrote him later in his life and said that hearing Tolkien recite Beowulf was an unforgettable experience and that his voice was as the voice of Gandalf. Mm. He apparently had a habit of starting his Beowulf lectures by walking in silent, turning to his students and shouting, Hoats! which is the opening line, and then reciting the first few lines of the poem in Old English as if he were a bard in a mead hall, right? To really show, like, this is a piece of poetry. This is a story. More than it is anything else, more than it's a historical document, this is a story first and foremost. Um, and a small aside, I have mentioned previously on the podcast, I studied abroad in Denmark in undergrad, and one of the classes I took was on Norse mythology. And so being there, we went out to old uh, Viking sites, including to the small town of Lyra, which is widely considered to be the location of Be the story in Beowulf and uh, in Hrolf Kraki's saga. And they found outlines of where King's old mead halls would have stood. And nothing really stands there now. You just kind of have post holes, but they've outlined it in stones. Mm -hmm. And they found the one that dates roughly to the sixth century. And so our class, we were all standing in this windy field, uh, in this outline of stones, This what would have been back in the sixth century, a massive mead hall. And our professor, who is this six foot five Danish man, with a booming voice, stood up on a rock and read from the passage of Beowulf where he first enters Heorot, the hall of King Hrothgar, where he describes it as beautiful, uh, you know, one of, one of the wonders of the world, roughly. And, you know, I think that was just a very interesting experience. And when, when I read uh, this description of W.H. Auden, um, of, of how Tolkien began his lectures, I, my mind immediately shot back to that, right? That's, that's the power of a good professor. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, you can be a good scholar without necessarily being a good teacher. It sounds like he was a really interesting professor. I would have loved to have taken his class. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, he started this prose or he finished this prose translation. It was, he did his translation of Beowulf is a prose is a prosaic translation, mostly mm -hmm. to carry over meaning of the words. But he was saying, um, you know, he published multiple essays on the difficulty of translating Beowulf. Um, other translators such as Seamus Heaney are famous for sort of translating it into a modern form while uh, preserving the poetic nature of it, right? Maria Davna Headley, in her 2020 translation, does this really interestingly by mixing sort of modern language in, 
So yeah, that that's first the bro word, one that we've talked that's about. That's the bro in, one. Yeah. Yeah. The, that first word, what, is usually uh, translated as like listen or low. It's um, so the first line translates roughly to, you know, listen. As we tell the story, you know, we still know how to talk of kings, right? That's, it's, it's a piece of epic poetry. That's the sing to me, O muse, of the wrath of Achilles. That's, you know, tell me of the story of a clever man and his long journeys. That's, you know, armo warumque cano, troia qui prima bavoris italiam fato profuda. Um, that's, hell, that's, you know, two houses both alike in dignity. In fair Verona we lay our seed. Right? This is, the, that's setting the tone of the story. Mm -hmm. Starting out with, listen to me as I tell you yeah. of kings, right? And I, I, I don't know, I think, I think it would have just been really cool, like you're saying, to be in his class as he comes in and tells us that he is going to tell us the story of kings. Mm -hmm. And that story of kings is woven through Lord of the Rings, right? Oh, yeah. We just finished, you know, finished fellowship sailing by these great statues of Isildur and his forefathers, right? Where Aragorn. Who is totally the king that, that is returning. That's totally, who is totally, totally, totally the king that it. is returning. It, Aragorn is, you know, of kingly blood, right? Renewing the blade that was broken. The story is ultimately about this little hobbit with a great burden, but it is also about these epic kings and what they have wrought, mm -hmm. right? But anyway, his prose translation of Beowulf that he finished in 1925 that you, you mentioned wasn't published until 2014. I kind of question whether or not he would have wanted that published, specifically because of his various essays on, you know, trying to translate Beowulf while still holding the majesty of the words in Old English, you know, having these, translating these kennings that were antiquated even when they were written down, right? Mm -hmm. And making them understandable to a modern audience. Um, but regardless of whether or not his translation is, you know, the most definitive or whether he would have, you know, liked to have worked more on it. The work that he did on Beowulf was foundational for how Beowulf scholarship has happened in the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. So uh, he referred to Beowulf later in his life as among his most valued sources. And also said at one point that the dragon in Beowulf and the dragon in the saga of the Volsungs, which I'll mention in a moment, uh, were the only two dragons in mythology that were really worth considering. And so the, mm -hmm. they were his influences for smog in The Hobbit. But moving on to you know other pieces of English literature, he translated uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Pearl, and Sir Orfeo, which I have in my little book here. Amazing. Um all various tales uh, of Sir Orfeo is a retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice, but mm -hmm. mixed with like Celtic mythology and stories about the Fae. 
Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is from sort of Arthurian tales, and I'm not super familiar with Pearl. Um, moving on to other mythologies, he had a focus on a lot of sort of old Norse mythology. He often talked about, you know, quote, northern mythology and northern attitudes. You put hosier <laughs> scream in here. <laughs> um, How many times this morning did you listen to Northern Attitude on loop, Catherine? Like five or six. <laughs> oh my god! When you texted me this morning, you were only at four. So you started your day with a real interesting energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but yeah, Tolkien wasn't just focused on, you know stories and mythology from the old English tradition, he ultimately was discussing his creation of Middle-earth as a creating of a mythology for England, right? Mm-hmm. And we use this term mythopoeia to, to refer to the creation of mythology, the creation of myths. And a lot of his influences for that mythology came from the Eddas and the sagas of Norse mythology, the Finnish Kalevala, um, Greco-Roman mythology and, uh, Christian worldviews, uh, Catholic, Catholic. I hesitate to say Catholic mythology because to him, it wasn't a mythology regardless of our beliefs and feelings on that. Yeah. As, as a religious study scholar, I would say, hell yeah, Catholic mythology. You can say cosmology if you want to be a little more, not have sort of the, mm, dismissiveness that the word mythology can sometimes imply but this is this is that applicability again we're we're being modern readers and people who are not catholic because obviously modern catholics exist and you know might not take kindly to things being called mythology but functionally in contemporary scholarship we could call it that if we wanted to and not be disrespectful but yeah to him that was he did not view it in the same way you know he wouldn't have put his Catholic views in the same box as mythologies that he studied. No, but he did very clearly read the Eddas and the sagas. He mentioned at one point that the saga of the Volsungs was one of his favorite stories. It tells a story of, uh, the hero Sigurd who defeats the dragon Fafnir, who was corrupted by treasure that he stole from a dwarf. Mm-hmm. Um, among a few other tales within the saga as well. Most of the dwarf names, both in The Hobbit and throughout Lord of the Rings, come from a passage in both the Prose Edda and the Poetic Edda known as the Catalog of Dwarves. Oh, very which cool. Which is basically just a list. I definitely have read it to you before, but it's basically just a list of dwarf names. Um, and... <gasps> Book of Numbers core. <laughs> it's very Book of Numbers core. Um, so let me just pull up from my Poetic Edda here. Some of the names of the dwarves that we see in the Poetic Edda are Durin, which we recognize. Hmm. Dwalin, Bivor, Bavor, Bombor, Nori, Gandalf, <laughs> Thrain. <Yeah>, upgraded. <laughs> Thrain, Thorin, Thror, Feely, Keely, 
Oakenshield. Oh my god. Uh, let's see. There's a few others in here too. Uh, Balin is in here. This this one has some of the names translated. My prose at a doesn't, but the Gilfaginning is. Hmm. Here we go. Nain and Dane, who are Thorin's cousins. Oin, uh, Vali, let's see, Dori, Ori, Oin, Gloin. So yeah, he, he pulled a lot of names uh, direct from that little nice list for his dwarves. I love it. Uh, he also, in his representation of Gandalf, basically just took descriptions of Odin. Odin as the wanderer. And I'll put up on our social media for this episode, I'll put up uh, a lovely little portrait from, I believe, 1836, um, which if you don't know what you're staring at, looks like Gandalf. Is that the woodcut one? I think I have a I clear I don't believe it. it's a, it's a, um, it's the woodcut. I can't find it right now. Why not? Oh, well, but I'll put it up on our social media. At one point I sent it to my dad and went, who's this? And my dad, of course, big Tolkien fan went, that's Gandalf. And I went, do you know when this was painted? <laughs> uh, you know, a full hundred years before Tolkien came up with Gandalf. So, you know, I wrote for my Norse mythology class, my final paper was on Eddic references in The Hobbit. And there are dozens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Gandalf as Odin is one of the big ones. Uh, the character of Beorn in The Hobbit corresponds to Beowulf or Bodvar Bjarki, um, particularly more to Bodvar Bjarki because he can turn into a bear, as can Bjarki. Mm-hmm. Um, the the dragon being influenced both by Beowulf's dragon but also by Fafnir um, he, he pulled a lot from this mythology uh, and we've discussed a little bit I believe in the Tom Bombadil episode about his influence from the Kalevala where Tom Bombadil yeah. was heavily influenced by Venemoinen mm-hmm. um and just here, I'm just going to put in a quick apology to anyone who actually speaks the languages uh, that I've been butchering this whole time. So, uh, but speaking of languages, move on to his interest in languages. Mm-hmm. Also, if anyone does speak any of these languages and wants to just send us little sound clips of them talking, that'd be so cool. We can find a way to put it in the podcast. Yeah, that'd be very fun. Hopefully not saying anything mean that we wouldn't be able to understand because we don't speak the language. Honor system. Honor system. Please and thank you. <laughs> um, but Tolkien started out with an interest in conlines, constructed languages. Probably before 1909, at least, because we know in 1909, he created his first conline. Mm-hmm. Um. And he learned Esperanto sometime before then. Amazing. And he made, he ultimately created 
a lot of languages, the most developed of which are Sindarin and Quenya, which we've mentioned on the podcast before, Mm -hmm. right? He's also uh, created languages, other languages of Middle-earth include uh, Adunaic, Khuzdul, Rohurik, Western, uh, the Black Speech, and Entish, right? So all of which have their own influences and their own interrelations to each other, their own scripts. Um, he has, he wrote a treatise uh, about how the elven languages were related to each other in 1937. Mm-hmm. So his his world that he created was essentially just a world to support his language creation habit, which uh, he I referred to that. as glossopoeia, which is the creation of languages. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, all of the little pieces of language, and I think we, we've talked about this on one of the previous episodes, that the, the Lord of the Rings itself is, according to Tolkien, a translation of a Western, a work written in Western, right? That he has translated into English for us, the reader, right? Have we talked about the real names of the hobbits? I can't remember if we have. I know that you have sent me a video where someone was talking about the real names of the hobbits. I don't remember if we've talked about it on the podcast. Well, uh, because the whole book is a translation, right? Uh, he changed the names of many of the characters. And in Western, the names of the characters would be different. And so he, you know, certain names are the same. Gimli is the same because it's a Huzdul name. Legolas, um, things, things in Sindarin and things in Quenya. But names that are themselves in Western, the names of the hobbits, are if I can find them, because I didn't mean to do this. So some of them, he just changed a couple of things. So Bilba Labingi is Bilbo Baggins' real name. It sounds like a the fucking uh Teletubby. <laughs> the uh ending in Western is a masculine ending, but it is not typically in English. And so he changed it to Bilbo, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ra- uh, Razanur Tuk became Peregrine Tuk because Razar is a famous wanderer in Middle Earth mythology, and mm-hmm. so he chose the Peregrine, the the wandering bird. Kalamak Brandagamba is Meriadoc Brandybuck, and this was a little joke on his part because Kali. It's just the shortened form of the name means merry or happy in Western. Aww. And so he added Meriadoc, and there's some other old English piece to that. Uh, Mora, Mora Labingi is Frodo Baggins. Mora means wise, and Frod in Old English also roughly means wise. Mm-hmm. So he put a lot of thought into all of these names, right? All of these, you know, 
supposed English translations of Western words, which he made up. (laughs) Yeah. So he just took the language that he was teaching, Mm -hmm. that he was an academic expert on, and then used that to make translations into another language that he was making up, and then used that to come back into modern English and write his book. He Uh, was a massive nerd. (laughs) And that name translation just, and we had talked about this previously, just between the two of us, always reminded me of being a kid in church and hearing all of the names of characters in the Bible. And even as a small child thinking, there is no way that these guys were walking around in the first century CE in Palestine being named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Like there was no way that those (laughs) were their real names. (laughs) And, you know, you can find the historical supposed names of the disciples other places. But, yeah, it's the same. It's the same energy. It's just, you know, being translated into something that's more comprehensible. But I love the degree of thought and detail that he put into that. Which uh, leads us finally to his Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't have too much on this. We've already mentioned that he was a devout Catholic throughout his entire life. And that clearly influenced his worldview. Um, As he writes the Silmarillion, he writes it in a very similar way to the way Snorri Sturluson writes the Prose Edda, in which he describes the Anur, the, uh, the Valar, as great beings, but not gods, right? Because there's only one God. He argued that Eru Ilivatar was the Christian God. The Silmarillion was about the rise and fall of the elves, just as Genesis is about the rise and fall of man. He was saying, you know, the world that he is referring to in Middle Earth is our world. It is just a pre-Christian time, but that doesn't mean that, you know, to him, God didn't exist, right? In his mythology, in the legendarium that he has created, this is a world that existed long before us and ultimately Mm -hmm. became our world. Which is why if you roughly look at the map, it roughly looks like, you know, Europe, Africa, and Asia. Anyway, he also worked at one point on a translation of the book of Jonah in the 1966 translation of the Jerusalem Bible, which is a Catholic Bible translation that has been used throughout North America and Europe um, as sort of one of the primary English translations of uh, for uh, Catholics since mm-hmm. the late 60s. Um, and he said, you know, he was asked to do more, but he said, you know, he had other commitments and so only ended up finishing the book of Jonah and offered some other occasional notes here and there on some of the other books. Um, and said he was, you know, ultimately flattered to be listed as a major contributor. Mm-hmm. He said he didn't do that much work. Yeah. Um, but that's just, I guess, a brief overview of some of the major influences on on his writing and his work that I think we've already been keeping in mind as we've been reading through. And we wanted to make sure that you know, you, our listeners, also had access to that knowledge. And, you know, most of this is on his Wikipedia page, but also 
There are so many Wikipedia links that follow out of his one Wikipedia page about his life because he uh, was prolific in his writing and the effect that he ultimately had on genre fiction in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the ones that I currently have open are J.R.R. Tolkien, His Own Life, Languages Constructed by J.R.R. Tolkien, Influences on J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien and the Norse, Tolkien and Classics, The Ring of Gyges, The Battle of the Somme, his essays about Beowulf, his translation of Beowulf. Um, So there's also two pages that I saw linked there. That was one uh, Tolkien in race and Tolkien's Christianity and Christianity in Middle Earth, which we kind of touched on the Christianity aspect and the race aspect we've kind of talked about in previous episodes in a sort of roundabout way. But I think that's another, and we are not qualified to get into the nitty gritty of all of that in this very short form. But I think that's another situation where the allegory applicability dynamic kind of comes into how we analyze it in that as we go on, I think there will be a lot of points where we can talk about what does it mean to have certain groups of beings that possess inherent traits, possess inherent good and inherent evil, um, Mm -hmm. a moral geography about good in the West and evil in the East. You know, there's a lot of things that we can read into that. And he was a white British man in the early part of the 20th century. So those influences are undeniable, but you know, and you know, he can profess, you know, he professed that he despised, you know, Nazi racial theory, but that doesn't mean that he was, you know, not a racist man who benefited from racist practices and policies and systemic racism in England at the time. Um, Yeah. So there's a lot of nuance there, but just to make sure that listeners know we are aware of this and we are not uh, trying to gloss over it or make any excuses for anybody in here. There's, we will try to address things as they come up. And if there's anything really specific that listeners who are more familiar with his work than I am, obviously my whole deal here is not knowing things, but if there's stuff coming up that folks really want us to touch on or have particular insights on, especially as it pertains to race, because we are two white people, please send them to us. We would love to incorporate the perspectives of people who know more than we do. Yeah. Um, that goes for any sort of, you know, racial pieces in his writing, religious pieces in his writing, um, and also about his uh, influences. We'll discuss uh, some other pieces of Shakespeare when we get to that in the Two Towers. We'll discuss Exciting. some pieces of, you know, any other bits of classical mythology, any other bits of. Uh, northern mythology as we get into them uh but if there's anything you'd love us to dig more into to do a whole bonus episode on i will make sam read beowulf and we will talk about it on the pod if y'all would like to hear that (laughs) i mean i would read it anyway so you know i'm down yeah so um for this episode on Spotify, at least, we've enabled a Q&A feature. So you are welcome to 
if you are listening on Spotify, you can simply write in questions or responses directly. You can also always contact us on our social media at FanAppPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Um, the only one that I check on the regular is Instagram, but I do check the other ones irregularly. So just know you won't get a response as quickly. And we have an email. We have the fandom apprentice. We have an email. Com. Yes, which I check actually the most frequently because it's on my phone. Very nice. Yeah, we do want to oh. hear from folks. It's really cool and encouraging to know that we are reaching people's ears. And obviously we love talking to each other and we would just do this if it was just the two of us anyway. But knowing that these episodes aren't going out into the void and they're reaching people with opinions and feedback to make it a more engaged, dynamic conversation is really cool. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review, whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Please uh, leave us a written review if the podcast platform you're listening on allows that. You could leave comments on our YouTube channel because our podcast episodes live on YouTube as well. You can, you know, leave us little Q and A's on this particular episode on Spotify. You can come into our social media and our email, as we previously mentioned. Um, if we get a really nice message, maybe we'll read it on the air. Who knows? I would love to do that. I think that would be really cool. But anyway, uh, until next time, which I'm not going to say what we're talking about next time, because I don't know. We'll figure that out. Um, mm -hmm. I'm signing off. Sam, do you, do you have anything else you want to talk about for this episode? No. This has been a treat. This has been super fun. I'm excited for whatever comes next. This is this is good. And I hope I hope this uh, dear listener gives you a little bit more to hold in mind as we continue going through uh, the rest of Tolkien's saga of Frodo and the Ring. So then until next time, uh, have a lovely week, a lovely night, a lovely day. A Lovely day. Lovely day. <laughs> and just fade out on that because, man, I got nothing else to say. Bye. Good night. The Phantom Apprentice is produced and edited by Rin and Sam. Our music was composed and performed by James, and our art is by Casey Turgeon. This podcast is created for non commercial entertainment purposes, and the opinions expressed therein are our own and are not reflected with the opinions of any other person or organization. The content discussed is the property of the Tolkien estate and is used here under fair use. Thank you.